Job chapter 25 says this. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? Then Job answered and said, How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power... Who can understand? Please keep your Bibles open. And can I ask the children to follow Tom, who will be leading you to Sunday school, and Sam to come over. Just before you go, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we do pray for Tom as he leads the children. We pray for Sam as he gives the talk to the adults. We pray for clarity, for conviction. We pray, Lord, that your sovereignty will reign supreme. Amen. Um, for those of you that have been around, um, and we started this way, way, way back last year, we've been going through the book of Job. Uh, we finished in July last year. We've had a bit of a break, and we came back to it a few weeks ago. And at this point in the book of Job, there's kind of this back and forth dialogue. He has three, we're calling them friends. He, well, the Bible calls them friends. They're not really very friendly. They're not very nice. They're not very helpful. They're a bit mean. Um, but there's constantly this back and forth dialogue. One of Job's friends speaks, and then he has a reply to them. And they've got this ongoing theme. Um, and at the start of the book of the Job, we see that uh, God allows Satan to punish him. God is allowing Satan to punish him, to test his faith. But these friends come along, and they say their theme is that Job is being punished because he is wicked. That's what they say. Job is being punished because he's wicked. And um, what Bildad has said today in chapter 25, that's the final speech of the three friends. And it pretty much carries on along the same theme. It's not very nice. In fact, it might be even worse than the ones we've seen before. 
Now, as Christians, we believe that God sees us as righteous because of what Jesus has done. Correct? Correct. You imagine how you would feel if you were, I don't know, going through a tough time in life. One of your friends came alongside you and they attacked your status before God. They attacked the fact that God had made you righteous. Look at you. Look at the things you've done. How can you be righteous before God? Do you remember what you did last year? Do you remember that? How can you think that you could be righteous before God? This is your punishment. How could God possibly see you as righteous after you did that thing that you did last year? Or after you skipped all those Sundays coming to church? Or after you said that thing to your friend last week? And that's basically what Bildad is doing in this short chapter. Job is righteous in God's eyes. We know that from the beginning. And Bildad says, that just can't be true. It's false. So chapter 25, which um, I asked Kenny to read in kind of like a haughty, arrogant way, which he did a very good job of. Um, Bildad paints this wrong view of man and God. And to kind of summarize what he says, he says man is, man is worthless to God. That's what he says. And he builds up this picture of this massive gap between God and man. And he's basically saying this gap is so vast, there is no possible way that man can be pure in God's sight. There's no possible way that man can be redeemed. Look at verse 4. These are the questions he asks. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Now, he thinks the answer to those questions are, they can't. And he's repeating, this isn't his question, by the way, or it might be, but the three friends seem to have come up with this together. Because if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 17, uh, Eliphaz asks the same question, pretty much. In chapter 4 of Job, verse 17, Eliphaz says, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? So the three friends, they seem to have come up with these questions together. But back in chapter 25, these questions are sandwiched around this view of God and this view of man. And the view of God in verse 2 and 3 is that God is mighty. Just read verse, chapter 25, verse 2. Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? So we've got this, this word dominion, which means God is, is sovereign. He has all power and all control. He's a God who brings peace. He's omnipresent, which is what he's saying. His light shines, his presence, his light shines upon everyone. God is mighty. So, verse 4, who can be right before him, who can be pure before him? Well, his answer in verse 5 and 6 is that man is nothing. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. So he's saying this moon and the stars, they're not pure in God's eyes. And man is way, 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 way lower than that. What does he call them? A maggot. He calls us a maggots and worms. I meant to bring a worm with me, by the way. I forgot. 
But you have to imagine, right? A wriggling, dirty, slimy worm. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying that man is like. So what? He's, he's right, isn't he, in one sense? Isn't he right that there's a massive gap between God and man and that man doesn't mean anything to God? Well, there's one thing he's right about. He's right about the part of God's character he describes. Right? We know we know God has all dominion, all power. God is the one who brings peace. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And he has everything that he needs at his disposal. And he's also kind of right that there is no earthly, no human way that unrighteous, sinful man can be made right with God. Because sin has to be punished. And Colossians 2.14, we'll look at it a bit more in a minute, it talks about a debt of sin. Right? Mankind has a debt of sin to God. So there is, in a way, a gap between mankind and God that is God is sin. Mankind cannot access God in a human way because of sin. That's about all he's right about because most of what he says is wrong. He's wrong about the status of man. Men are not worthless to God. Men are not maggots and worms. And the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, shows us how important humans are to God when he created them. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then it says, and it was so. So we learn right at the very beginning of the Bible that God created man in his image. To display his characteristics on the earth. And and, and more than that, God gives man a special role. A special dominion over the fish of the sea and the things that grow. And that word dominion, we've already seen that in this chapter. Dominion and fear is with God, but God gives man dominion as well. And that separates mankind from animal kind. You don't see foxes getting special positions from God. It doesn't happen, it's not that. So we're not maggots. Um, I remember I was brought up in... in, uh, quite a strict church and we, we used to sing old hymns and there was a hymn we used to sing um, which talked about um, the line was great God how infinite art thou what worthless worms are we uh, and that's not true Isaac Bildad Watts if you know who that is <laughs> we're not worthless to God he cares about people and Bildad's view is that man cannot be pure before God the gap cannot be closed Worthless worms cannot reach an almighty, powerful God. And uh, what he's basically saying is that Job is being punished because he cannot be right with God. Job, you can't get across that gap, so you're being punished. Sounds familiar, right? We've, We've seen this theme again and again. Job is being punished because he's wicked. But he's wrong about that too. Because in chapter 1, verse 8, what does God say about Job? 
Um, he's talking to, to Satan. And he says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And so what Bildad is finishing off, what his friends have done all along, he's insulting the truth about Job as a righteous man. His final words are to call Job a wicked worm with no hope. It's pretty mean. And I think the other problem with what he's saying is he just focuses on one aspect of God and he says that man can't get to God and so he's painting a picture of a very distant, high up God. And I think we can come, we can come across this danger in, in, in our thoughts of God as well. We, kind of, we see God as this big, powerful guy up in the sky who's looking down at worthless humans below and going, eh, like that. But we know through the Bible that God draws near to man. Right? We saw it. The start of the Bible starts with perfection where he creates mankind and he dwells in the Garden of Eden with them. He lives in the Garden with them. And even when Adam and Eve, they break this relationship by bringing sin into the world, one of the first things God does is he reaches down to them and clothes them. And then throughout the Bible, God is crafting, he's crafting a salvation plan because he wants man to be able to dwell with him once again. And so in the Old Testament, he comes to his people and and you've got the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and you've got the temple where God's presence dwells. And then you've got Old Testament prophets who write things like uh, like Jeremiah does in Lamentations 3, where he says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. It doesn't sound like a distant God to me. But God is just. And the sin that stops man from getting to him has to be punished. Job understands this. Um, At the beginning we saw him, he was making sacrifices for his children to atone from their sins. And actually the irony is at the end he makes sacrifices to his friends for his friends to atone from their sins. But sacrificing animals, that wasn't a permanent solution. God had something much better in mind. And this salvation plan that he crafted resulted in him sending his son Jesus who drew near by leaving heaven and coming down to earth. And the debt of sin that I talked about from Colossians 2 is in this context Let me read Colossians 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Jesus went to the cross to make it possible for us to dwell again with him. The debt of sin that we owe to God, cancelled. So God can then see us as righteous and pure. It's the perfect once for all sacrifice to sin. And while we wait to dwell again with God in the perfection of a new heaven and a new earth, and when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't leave, didn't leave us without his presence. He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with us. And to give us good gifts. Gifts from God. 
That doesn't sound like a distant, angry God to me. That sounds like a just, loving, caring, good God who desires to dwell with his people. So Bildad is wrong. It is possible for man to be right with God. It is possible for one born of a woman to be pure because a redeemer lives. And his name is Jesus. So then we have a start, and, and this is, um, we'll be going through this over the next few Sundays. We've got a seven-chapter response from Job. I think basically he's fed up of his friends talking, and he just wants to keep talking because he doesn't want them to have a turn again. So it's Job's turn. Okay, so he has a seven-chapter response, and we're going to start by looking at the first bit of that response. And he's going to show us a right view of God and man. And it's slightly strange. Because the way he kicks off is that he's saying, man cannot fully understand God's ways. His first response, man cannot fully understand God's ways. He's basically going to take a sledgehammer to the code of his friends that they think is, can't be broken. Just a reminder what, what his friends think. Right, this is his friend's theology. What you do decides what you get from God. If you're evil, you get punished from God. If you do good, you get blessed by God. Job is suffering because Job has sinned, because he's wicked. And because he's suffering really badly, he must have been very wicked. That's the friend's theology. And what Job is saying is that, well, you could be wrong because God chooses to conceal knowledge from humans. Or another way of putting it, there's no way his friends can actually understand God like they think they do. So let's, let's um, we unpack what he says, and there's some slightly weird things in there, but um, before that, um, he shares his feelings on how he's feeling about what his friends have said to him so far. And I said to Kenny, I said, read it with sarcasm, because verse 2 to 4 are very sarcastic. He says, um, look at 26 verse 2, how you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. What he's saying is, you have not helped the powerless. You have not saved the weak. You have not counseled the foolish. And there's no way that you have a right to give someone a certificate saying that you have a qualification in sound knowledge. And then he says, verse 4, and think. With whose help have you uttered words, and whose breath has come out from you? And what the undertone is, because it definitely is not God. You're definitely not speaking God's words. You think, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you think you know God. Well, here's three things to show you. Look at verse 14. He says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. By the thunder of his power, who can understand? So here's three things. He's going to show us three things to say, you don't understand God. And all three examples, they're all about God's power. Um, It reminded me, actually, when I was doing this, of my English lessons. Um, Do you remember, I'm sure it happens nowadays too, um, your teachers tell you to pee when you're doing your work, right, in English. Point, explanation, example. Did you not have that? Is this not what they teach at university nowadays? Okay, maybe it was just me. 
So the teachers say, because they think it's funny, you have to pee on your work. Okay? Point, you make a point, you, you give examples, and you explain your examples. Job's point is, you can't understand God. His evidence is, uh, God conceals knowledge about his power. And let's try and do some explanation here. So who can understand? Number one, who can understand God's power over the dead? Look at verse 5 and 6. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. We can't see the realm of the dead. This is a strange thing. To, it's, a, it's a weird thing to think that there's a place where sin, sinful dead people go. The realm of the dead. And... It talks about Sheol, that's another word for hell. It's saying Sheol is, is naked before God. Okay, mankind cannot understand or see this, but before God it's just open. Abaddon, the pit of destruction, is called Abaddon. It has no covering. The dark bottomless pit of destruction. Before God it's like the cover's been taken off. There's no concealing it from God. But what man has ever seen it? This is a strange thing. And the most evil, dark places are under God's submission. We can't understand it. We're not meant to understand it. It's meant to be a mystery. And then we've got um, the second thing. Who can understand? Who can understand God's power over creation? Look at verse 10. I think there's some beautiful imagery in this, the way Job describes it. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Now, you have to remember when this was written, they didn't understand these things. We understand these things. Let me try and explain to you what's going on. Verse 7 is talking about the horizon. The way the, the heavens seem to stretch out and then suddenly meet a flat line. We understand that. We understand that the earth is round. They wouldn't have understood that. Uh, verse 8 and 9, he's talking about the way water evaporates and condenses to form clouds. And somehow these clouds, they stay as clouds. They don't burst. And then these are the clouds that cover the stars and the moon and the sun. They wouldn't have understood that. They wouldn't have understood how it happened. It would have been a mystery to them. And then verse 10 is talking about the way the sun sets over the sea. And you get a beautiful orange circle at the point where it goes from day to night. They wouldn't have understood how that happened. We understand that. But we don't understand everything, right? We still still don't understand the vastness of creation. Um, I looked up some stats, if you're interested in stats. Uh, The latest data from the the Hubble and uh, Hipparchus telescopes... They're the big, the big new ones. Uh, they suggest that the observable universe is 93 billion light years wide. Um, I tried to Google how many miles that was, and it told me that there was no such number that existed. And then I found an answer that said 550 septillion miles wide. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, and they've made a prediction based on this distance that there are two trillion galaxies which uh, each galaxy has about 100 million stars. So in total, there's about 10 billion billion stars. And that's just the bit we can see. 
because I'm sure at some point they'll invent a new telescope that can see even further. We still haven't mastered the science behind how God created the world. We know God created the world, that's the faith we have, but, but no, one's really, no one really understands how it happened. And we still don't understand how human emotions work. Scientists haven't worked out how they work, how the brain works to control human emotions. And so there's still so much, and this is Job's point, that we don't understand about how God created things. And that's incredible, and it doesn't matter. It might matter to some of you. Uh, and lastly, who can understand, thirdly, his power over those who are against him? Look at verse 11 to 13. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So the building of heaven, the very building of heaven is shaking at God's rebuke. Against what and who? Well, first of all, the sea, which is a symbol of evil in the Bible, is stilled by God. Evil is quietened. And we've got this new character um, that's called Rahab and the fleeing serpent. They're the same thing. And what happens to this character? They are shattered and pierced. Um, And Isaiah calls this creature Leviathan. It's a pretty cool name. And this is what happens to Leviathan. In Isaiah 27 verse 1 it says, In that day the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Um, Rahab could also be a word for Egypt. And we know what happened when Egypt tried to go against God. You know the story, the ten plagues. And the point Job makes is, anyone who tries to oppose God, anything that is evil, will be destroyed. And, and in making this point, he's foreshadowing things he couldn't possibly understand himself. It's, it's, a prophet, it's kind of prophetic what he's doing. And so I think we could read Job's description of God and we could say, well, actually, surely this makes us agree with Bildad, right? Surely this makes us agree with a picture of a big, majestic God up in the sky who couldn't possibly have any sort of relationship with mankind. The picture of God here that he paints is is magnificent, is scary. And so how could that God possibly be interested in us? And we're very blessed to have the big picture of the Bible. The picture of God as majestic and mighty, yet a God who desires to enter into a loving, redeeming relationship with mankind. Who desires to dwell with man again. As we've already seen, he created the wonders of the heaven and the earth to reflect his glory. And we know of the one who will bring the defeat of evil. We know the prophecy of the one whose heel will crush the serpent, Satan, the monster Leviathan. We know the one who himself would be pierced so the serpent could be pierced. And we know this happened at the cross when Jesus died. The cross when God shook the whole of creation. At the death of his perfect son and the sun went dark and the ground shook as the evil one, Satan, was being dealt his final blow. The righteous man, Jesus, who suffered unjustly so that those who are powerless and weak could come to him. 
And Jesus said it himself in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then he wraps up his first, his first conclusion with verse 14. He says, Behold, these are but an outskirts of his, the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? These things that he's talked about, they're massive. Right? The defeat of evil, the movement of the clouds, the sun, the horizon, the galaxies, the submission of the dead. But for God, they're just a whisper of his majesty. How could we possibly understand the full-blown power, the full-blown thunder of his power? Who can understand? And that's the point to his friends. You think, you think, Eliphaz, you think, Bildad, you think, Zophar, you think you've nailed God. You're wrong. Your picture of God is distant, fixed, angry, self-centered. Here's a whisper of an all-powerful God who defeats evil, who desires to dwell with mankind. How could we possibly understand his majesty? Do, Do you not think for a moment that you could be wrong? And we know that where his friends failed again and again, and the things he talked about at the beginning of chapter 26, we know that God succeeds in those things. We know that where his friends failed to help the powerless and they failed to help the weak. This is what Isaiah 40 says. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And if you're not a Christian here today, you might have a Bildad view of life. You might have a Bildad view of God. You think that God is far away from you. You think that the mess you've made of your life means that God could not possibly even consider you let alone enter into a relationship with you. All the wrong things you've done, the wrong things you've said, you see them as that gap is too big. You might have spent 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life rejecting him. You might have done something that you think is unforgivable. Picture God. Picture him reaching out to you. Picture him offering you forgiveness through Jesus. He cares for you. Ask him, ask him to forgive you and rescue you, to redeem you, and he will. Humble yourself before his majesty today, because there is nothing you've done that God cannot forgive. That gap, the gap between you and God, has been bridged by Jesus on the cross. So that you can be pure in God's sight, if you don't know him today. Please come and talk to someone about that afterwards. Talk to myself, Kenny. Talk to George, anyone here who loves Jesus. Talk to us about it. And if you're a Christian, well, first of all, praise God, right? Praise God that he is approachable and that he sees us as righteous because of Jesus. 
Praise God that we have forgiveness through him. That all the evil in our hearts has been defeated. Praise God that we have his spirit living inside us. God's not distant. He chooses to dwell inside us when we come to know him. Praise God. He loves us and is for us. He's not against us. And yet we struggle with God being in control. Uh, This week we've been waiting for uh, Bethan to give birth. And we've been so fed up. Right? I'm so impatient. And it's hard. It's hard to trust that God wants us to wait. It's hard to trust that God is in control. But if the baby had come, I wouldn't be able to stand here because Rob's ill. He has a plan. He has a plan. And you might be going through an incredibly tough time in your life. And I know what that feels like. And it's so, so hard to see God's purpose. And it's so, so hard to see what God is doing. And he has things in control. Even though you don't understand, he is with you. And we sung about it earlier. Oh no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm. And one day... One day you will look back on the things that happened in your life and you will see God's plan worked out through the most painful of situations and then you can look forward and you can hope in dwelling with him in perfection. And then there's one more thing. The the questions that he asked his friends in verse 4. With whose help have you uttered words? And whose breath has come out from you? Well, you could ask those questions to yourself. With whose help are you uttering words to those around you when you come alongside them? How have you helped? With what words have you helped and saved and counseled people? Are they your own words? Or are they the words of God? Are you doing things in your own strength when you talk to people, when you comfort people, when you come alongside and share with someone? Or are you doing it with the boldness of the Holy Spirit, God living inside you? Are you taking people to Jesus or are you drawing them away from him? Because God will help us. God will help us to speak his words to those around us who need comfort. And he will help us take them to the one who gives strength to the weak power to the powerless he will help us take people to the one who is the source of true wisdom he will help us take people to the one who conquered sin and death and the one who is waiting for us to join him in perfection amen let's pray let's ask god for that help lord jesus i thank you that you are not distant from us i thank you that you chose to dwell with us Thank you, God, that you love us so much you sent your son to die on the cross, to bridge the gap so that we could be made pure and right in your sight. So that being righteous is an actual thing and not something that's just made up. I thank you, Lord, for for the forgiveness that's found in you, Lord. I pray for anyone here today who does not know you. Lord, I pray that you would have spoken to them. 
that they would understand that you care about them. And you want them to know you. You want to dwell in their life. And Lord, for people here who are struggling and can't see God in the, in the picture of the stuff they're going through, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would have spoken to them today. Lord, that you would bring comfort and peace, that people would know that you are in control, that you will not let go of them. Even though we cannot always understand what you are doing, Lord, you are good. And Lord, we look forward to one day being in perfection with you in a place where there will be no more suffering or pain. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in the words that we speak to those around us. That we would be praying every day that we would speak words from you and not from our own sin. And we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.